Bob Murphy Show, episode 105. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is going to be Corey DeAngelis, he is the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation and is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. So as those posts suggest, Corey is going to be here in his capacity as an advocate for school choice. In the beginning of the interview, I have him spell out exactly what he means by that term and also a lot of the related terms like what's the difference between a charter school and a magnet school and that kind of thing. It's a provocative discussion. We also get into some areas like with the research on so-called school choice. And then at the end, I do push back a little bit in case some of you purists out there are waiting for it just to challenge some of the arguments that the libertarian community gives in favor of things like government-funded vouchers for parents to send their kids to schools of their choice just to raise some questions about is that really the right approach and maybe some of the rhetoric involved. So all in all, I think after the interview, you will understand a lot more about school choice and the research supporting it. Without further ado, here is my interview with Corey DeAngelis. Well, Corey, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you, you ruined my opening line of inquiry as I was going to ask you why you're always dressed in a suit. And then this is the one time I've seen you not in a suit. Is it because? Yeah, you, you caught me while, while I'm at home. And, you know, this is the, while I'm at home, I usually don't dress up and I'm not wearing my bow tie this time. <laughs> no, I was, I was going to ask you because in grad school, there was this one guy in my program going through and he said the reason he went into academia is because he didn't want to ever have to wear a tie to work. And so I'm wondering, like, did you not realize that you're allowed to? <laughs> yeah, well, when I started at Cato, one of the uh, dress codes at Cato is to wear a tie. So that's kind of how the bow tie thing actually started. Uh, but now I'm at, at the Reason Foundation and I work from home and it's a lot more relaxed and um, don't wear. I, I usually don't even get this dressed up. This is like high, high, you know. <laughs> this is Bob Murphy's show wardrobe. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I usually wear a tank top and some workout clothes while I'm working from home. So, okay. Um, so obviously I think people know you and that's why I want to get you on the show is because I saw you were really making waves. T tell us your like, what is your niche? Is it, is it like education, school choice? You know, that just that, how do you describe yourself and what it is that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you can say I do education work and that I comment on all types of education policies, but 99% of the work that I do personally is uh, private school choice programs, also public charter schools. So I look at the, the research, summarize the research about uh, what the scientific evidence says on these types of topics. But then I also make moral arguments for school choice in general. And so just for the listeners, I'll define school choice pretty easily because there's a lot of different forms of school choice. Sure. But the way I define it is that, you know, in the current system in the United States, in most states, the default option is that you are residentially assigned to a government-run school, just based, you know, based on where you live, you, you're supposed to go to that school. So I define school choice as any type of 
movement from that residentially assigned government monopoly system that allows families to take their education dollars and take that to whatever type of school they want. That could be a different government-run school, so that's like open enrollment. It could be a magnet school. It could be a charter school, a private school, a homeschool option. I call all of those types of options that get you away from residential assignment school choice. Okay, great. And you just went into something I wanted to ask you about. Just for the benefit of the listener, when people wade into this area, there are a few terms. And so would you mind just like, what's the difference between magnet school, yeah. charter school, yeah. homeschool, you know, just real briefly, just so people know what those terms mean. Yeah. So like I said, any movement from that residentially assigned system is school choice. And so like the easy or the most simple forms of school choice is just being able to fix or pick a different type of government run school or district run school, mm-hmm. whatever term uh, people like to use. So that's called open enrollment. So if I'm okay. assigned to this school, but I say I want to go to this school and I'm allowed to, I would call that an open enrollment system. Mm-hmm. There's also government run magnet schools. I actually went to a magnet school when I grew up in Texas and for high school, it was a special specialty school. Um, it, it had selective admissions. These schools can have selective admissions, but they're still government-run schools. Those are called magnet schools. Uh, the next step is- so a, Can is I a, stop you, Corey? So, yeah. so is that um, like, uh, okay, you're in fifth grade and you're taking standardized tests and the parents are crossing their fingers because they want to get into such and such for junior high and only the kids who score above a certain thing get in and, they're, is that, and yep. everyone knows that's, that's the better free government school than the other one? That, okay. Yep. Yep. It's still government run, um, but they can have selective admissions. All Not all of them have selective admissions, but they're allowed to. Okay. Unlike charter schools, charter schools, for the most part, are privately run schools that are publicly funded. So the, the dollars follow the child to the charter school. But charter schools are different from magnet schools in that they have to, they're overwhelmingly they're supposed to use uh, random admissions. So they cannot have selective admissions. And uh, they they can be privately run. So that's the charter school option. But this gets a little tricky um, because a lot of people will say that, and including myself, just following the definition from the Department of Education, that charter schools are actually public schools, even though they're privately run, which gets a little confusing. They're public schools because they have to follow all the federal regulations that public schools have to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're publicly funded. Um, the State Department of Education's and the U.S. Department of Education classifies them as public schools. So I kind of try to think, I I personally think of them as like a quasi-private entity. And they're super highly regulated. Uh, A lot of the times the government, the districts uh, in particular states have to approve charter schools to be able to open. It's kind of like McDonald's approving all the Burger Kings that open. So it's a very regulated type of private. Okay. I was going to ask you, is it it a useful analogy to think of like met senior citizens who receive Medicare, but they go to a private health clinic and they get paid federal money or that's not? Well, that's that, that would be more like a voucher program. So that's another type of school choice. So okay. I'm moving, I'm moving from like the, right. the, the most basic to the, the more freedom. Okay. okay so let me, so the difference is the, the charter school only gets money directly from the government, but the that's parents, another, okay. That's another difference. They cannot charge tuition and they okay. cannot be religious in nature. Whereas private, true private schools, can charge prices. And as economists, we know all the benefits of prices and being able to fluctuate prices. I mean, one of the problems here with charter schools is that they must be free at the point of entry, which leads to a lot of shortages in higher quality charter Mm -hmm. schools. They can't raise their price. So what they do is essentially have wait lists all across the country. Some estimates have said that about a million children 
students or students' names are on wait lists in the United States to try to get into charter schools. And I've argued all along that it's probably because they can't charge prices. And so you you, you get a shortage problem with mm-hmm. the higher quality, uh, which leads to some monopoly power, right? So shortages, mm-hmm. persistent shortages over time lead to quality deterioration. But to get to the next type of school choice, the one that Milton Friedman is pretty famous for from his 1955 essay, The Role of Government in Education, is Instead of being able to take those dollars that would have went to your residentially assigned school, the family takes those dollars, a fraction of those dollars. Um, they, I don't know of any voucher program where you get 100% of the funding that would have went to the public school. They, they do this uh, so that they can save money. It's a, it's a political sure. uh, thing to, to sell the program to get it passed politically. Uh, but you can take that money to pay for a private school tuition and fees. So that's Milton Freeman's voucher idea. These are these are religious. These are re- religious and non-religious private schools. They can. It, it's a pure private school that that can accept uh, voucher funding. But voucher programs are different across the U.S. You know, some some states like Louisiana are extremely regulated, whereas they say you have to accept all students. You can't use any admissions standards. You have to take the state standardized test. But there are other voucher programs which don't have as much regulation, such mm-hmm. as the one in one in Florida. In Florida, actually, they have a tax credit scholarship program as well. So it's a different type. Sure, so instead sure. of the money coming from the public education budget to the private school of choice, it's just funded a little differently, but it's the same kind of idea. Whereas in in, in Florida, for example, you have individual donors, uh, households, and, and corporations donating to something called a scholarship granting organization. So it's still private dollars because they're private donations. They get kind of a tax benefit from doing so. And then individuals, uh, typically low-income families, are, are only eligible for these programs, just like the one in Florida, come to the scholarship granting organization. And the scholarship granting organization uh, gives those scholarships out to to all the people if they qualify. Um, and so places like Cato and, and people like myself have argued that tax credit scholarships are beneficial because they're privately funded and therefore, they, they tend to be less regulated than the publicly funded voucher program options. There is one more, there's one more type of school choice, if you, if you want me to keep going. Sure, yeah. It's, an, it's called the education savings account. So this can be publicly funded or privately funded. It's just like a voucher. Uh, but it, 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 it's really it takes the conversation from school choice to education choice because the money, instead of going in the form of a voucher to use at a private school, it goes into a savings account and the parents and the family members can use those uh, dollars uh, on private school tuition, but they can use it on other types of approved uh, educational expenditures, such as tutoring or textbooks or online or virtual learning. And so it really takes us from school choice to education choice. And I think that's the best way to structure uh, private school choice. And I think most states that are proposing bills to, to try to expand private school choice in the U.S. at least are now more so uh, pushing for uh, education savings accounts rather than than voucher programs. Okay, great. Thanks for that. If you don't mind, let me just ask you to clarify, uh, just as an economist here in these terms, where so the the um, the charter school, if if they're not allowed to have selective admissions, then what is it? Just the mere fact of opening up competition once in a while, or of any given group of schools in an area one of them is going to happen to be the best one for whatever reason. And then the parents want to get into there. And, and that's the, the benefit of like of just even the tiniest little o- trickle opening the drain of competition raises standards. Yeah. I think it's a competitive effect, uh, especially given the, the, the fact that charter schools are disproportionate or overwhelmingly must use uh, 
you know, uh, random admissions. There are some exceptions to that rule, okay, so I have okay. to say that. But overwhelmingly, states say that charter schools are supposed to use random admissions. There are some exceptions. Um, mm. But it, it, in theory, it must be competition because in the current system, and this is what uh, Milton Friedman argued for, for vouchers in 1955, was that the residential assignment and the compulsory education laws and also coupled with the compulsory funding of public schools creates a, a large degree of monopoly power. Just imagine if you were residentially assigned to your nearest grocery store, and if you wanted to go somewhere else, you had to move houses. That's extremely costly, right, right. and we wouldn't expect grocery stores to do a very good job. Same thing with any other type of uh, service or, or you know, you could, you could imagine restaurants, for example, or grocery stores. Uh, so that it seems like it reduces monopoly power, and that should lead to improved quality and, and lower costs in, in the market mm -hmm. for education. Right. Okay, great. Um, so maybe what, what, maybe a fun way to, to segue to the next topic, because I do want to ask you about the, the empirical findings. Hmm. So I, why don't we go ahead and listen to this uh, clip. It's from a recent interview of uh, Paul Krugman was on Ezra Klein's show. And why don't we just play this little clip? So take a listen, folks. Go ahead, guys, and, and roll the clip. There are a lot of things where public provision is just plain more efficient than private. Um, and so I, I actually tried at one point to kind of make up a list of, of things that we might think are better done by the public sector than the private sector uh, and ask how much of the economy it is without going too far. So I think we, we did learn from the history of the 20th century that you probably don't want the government running auto companies and steel mills. On the other hand, uh, publicly run utilities actually have a pretty good record. Uh, they are uh, places that actually still own their electric power company, did pretty well uh, in, in some of our various energy disruptions. Uh, basic education, definitely. There's really no uh, evidence at all that, that having widespread private provision of, of K through 12 um, is a good thing. And in fact, a lot of higher education has historically been done really well by state-run institutions. Uh, when I added up all of the things that where there's a pretty strong case that the public sector actually is better, it's 25% in the economy, maybe 30%. So fairly uh, straightforward economic logic actually says that a significantly mixed economy with a, with a pretty big public role makes a lot of sense. The notion that, that it should be market uh, except under extreme circumstances, just doesn't hold up in the face of what we know. What were the guiding principles of how you decided if something was better done by the market or by the government? Uh, well, basically pulling it out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> but no, things, things where we know. Look, As we, so much macroeconomics is. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't really macro. I mean, look, uh, uh, on healthcare, if you actually ask what system does seem to deliver the best results at low cost, it's genuine socialized medicine. The NHS uh, is actually a pretty good system and damn cheap. When it isn't being screwed up by the Mar-a-Lago gang, the Veterans Health Administration does a remarkably good job for very little money. Um, education, public education has always been the bedrock of our education system. And uh, the track record of private schools, for certainly of for-profit private schools, is actually horrifying. Okay, Corey, so there you have it. I mean, the man is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he's definitively saying the uh, it, it's a horrifying record, really. And, and really, <laughs> I don't understand how an ideologue could possibly think. So what, what's your reaction? Let me, let me do it this way. 
<laughs> with Krugman, I don't know how much you know of, of the stuff that I do, but I've dubbed this this term called a Krugman contradiction, where you <laughs> you spell contradiction with a K, where it's that a lot of times he'll say something that's extraordinarily misleading, and ninety nine percent of his readers would think he meant something that's clearly false, demonstrably false. But yet, if you really hyperanalyze what he said, you realize, oh wait a minute, no, he has an out. And this one, I'm not sure he has an out. Yeah, I mean, if the track record of private schools is actually horrifying, to quote Paul Krugman, then when you give people choice, then they should overwhelmingly choose government-run schools. So I don't see why people who fear school choice have anything to fear if the, if it's true that, that mm-hmm. the track record of private schools is actually horrifying. Mm-hmm. That's not actually true. If you look at the evidence, and if you look at the most rigorous evidence, there have been 16 random assignment studies in the U.S., and when I say random assignment— uh, when there are more students who want to use a voucher program than there are spots available, the government says we have to allocate these at random. So you right. get essentially a medical trial and you can determine mm-hmm. the effects of, the, of getting access to a private school through, through the voucher. Um, so it's a causal. Uh, we can be pretty confident that these are causal relationships because of that random assignment mechanism. So there are 16 that link access to a voucher program, which gets you to a private school, to test scores in the U.S. And the only experimental evaluations uh, that have found negative effects, there have been two of them following the same sets of students in Louisiana, which, as I said earlier, is one of the most uh, highly regulated voucher programs in the U.S. Uh, But this is the only location that has found statistically significant negative effects on students' test scores. Ten of those 16 evaluations have found statistically significant positive effects on math or reading test scores for some students, for some subgroup of students, or overall groups of students. About So the, the remaining four studies have found no statistically significant differences on math or reading test mm-hmm. scores. And But I will say that even if there's no statistically significant difference, I, as I said earlier, voucher programs disproportionately get a ton of a, a, a much less funding per pupil than the traditional public schools because that's how we get these voucher programs passed. So even when there's no difference, that implies to me a positive return on right. investment at that least. They, for you don't hurt. Dollars. You don't hurt educational achievement by reducing this expenditure per student. So even that should be. Yeah. yeah. So and, and then this doesn't even take into consideration all of the other outcomes that are much more important to families. If you ask families. What, why did you choose this school instead of this other school? Or, you know, if you ask families that are using private school choice programs, they overwhelmingly rank uh, standardized test scores towards the bottom of the list of why they cho- choose particular schools. They mm-hmm. rank things like moral education, safety, disciplinary practices at the top mm-hmm. of the list, um, civic outcomes. So families care about a lot more than just standardized test scores. And I think academics missed that a, a lot of the time. So just for example, mm-hmm. the most recent federal randomized control trial of uh, experimental evaluation of the DC voucher program found no statistically significant effects on math or reading test scores after three years of using the program. In the most recent uh, evaluation uh, year of the uh, evaluation of the program, they found no effects on test scores, but they found uh, about a 34% increase in the likelihood of students saying that they're in a very safe school, which is a huge positive effect mm-hmm. there. They found large positive effects on uh, reports of satisfaction overall, and then also large positive effects on attendance. Uh, they actually measured attendance as uh, chronic absenteeism. So they found about an 18% reduction in chronic mm-hmm. absenteeism. So mm-hmm. 
it goes just goes to show you that if you feel safe when you go to school each day and you're satisfied with the school, you actually show up each day at, at the same time. So I think most people like Krugman will only look at the test score outcomes and and will ignore all the things that parents actually care about, like safety, satisfaction, linking school choice to crime. There have been six studies that have done that. They all find statistically significant reductions in crime. I did two of those studies myself. Um, but yeah, if you just look at this DC program, the average amount spent in DC public schools in 2016 is about $28,000 per pupil. That's a lot of money, but the vouchers were only worth around $9,500 in the most recent year. So you get the same test score wow. outcomes, mm -hmm. better, better non-test score outcomes at a third of the cost. Mm -hmm. um, so this, I don't know how, how Paul Krugman can look at this body of evidence and looking at this particular study in DC and then conclude that the mm -hmm. evidence for private schooling is is horrifying. That's just not true. I mean, he can say that about one particular study in Louisiana that found negative effects on test scores, but he should elaborate that this I'm only talking about this one location. I'm only talking about test scores. But you know, like even in Louisiana where they found negative effects on test scores, they found no effects on high school graduation or college enrollment. So the longer term outcomes it seems even in, in places like Louisiana tend to be either no different or better. And if you look at the evidence linking test, uh, private school choice to long-term outcomes, it tends to be more positive for private school choice. So educational attainment, for example, there have been eight studies that are either randomized control trials or rigorous non-experimental studies linking uh, access to a voucher program or tax credit scholarship program to either high school graduation, college enrollment, or college completion. And six of these eight studies have found statistically significant positive effects on at least one of these educational attainment outcomes. The two study, and then there was two studies that found no statistically significant differences. One of those was the Louisiana evaluation I just talked about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how Paul Krugman can look at this large body of evidence that tends to be in favor for school choice and then say it's actually horrifying. That's just not true. And in that same interview, um, he also said that there's really no evidence at all that having widespread private provision of K-12 is a good thing. And I mean, I guess you can say that if if having higher test scores, higher graduation rates, less crime, more safety is a bad thing. I guess he can if he defines good things as bad things, that would be true. But otherwise, his statement doesn't make any sense. And it's completely uh, misleading for him to say so, and especially when he says there's no evidence at all. Right. I that, mean, all yeah. I got to do is show you one study and, and prove you wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I have tons of studies. I'm not. I make the argument that the majority of the evidence is in favor of school choice, but he makes it really easy to prove him wrong when he says there's no evidence at all, because I just have to show you one study. And I, I tweeted it about this um, earlier today, and you can kind of check out some tables of studies that I've shared if, if the listeners want to mm -hmm. you know, fact check me, because uh, don't take my word for it. Look, look, look at the studies yourself. And, and, and you, know, you, you only have to find one to prove Paul Krugman wrong. But, right. I mean... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad a little later during the interview, he said, um, you know, Ezra Klein uh, asked him, so how did you determine whether the government or the private sector was better for a, a different industry? And Paul Krugman, his gut reaction was to say, oh, well, I, I basically pulled it out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, at least he was honest <laughs> on that not, part yeah, of the he's show. occasionally honest, yeah. <laughs> so let me, now you're the expert on school choice. I, all immodesty aside, I, I'm the expert on Paul Krugman's mind. And I think what happened there is he led with his strong, you know, no evidence whatsoever. And just in his writings, and when Krugman says there's no evidence for something, what he means is I can go find 
some people with decent academic positions who will make this claim. And that's the same thing as saying the other side has no evidence. Like that's just the way he uses the phrase. I mean, I know that's weird, but yeah, that, I know, that's I how know. he, yeah. <laughs> like with the minimum wage and stuff, he will say, oh, there's, there's no evidence that that causes any, any disemployment effect by which he means there are I've some seen, people who yeah. control a certain way. And so we can safely throw out the decades of studies that found the other way, because now the cutting edge says this is the way to control for X, Y, Z. Yeah. I mean, it's even worse than that in this case, I think, because we have randomized controlled trials. It's like we don't, yeah. you know, minimum wage, you know, you have different ways of studying it and mm -hmm. it's quasi-experimental or, or observational, whereas mm -hmm. with, with voucher programs, oh, we have yeah. randomized Yeah. So, so what, what I think so you happened, can't even do that. Yeah. What I think <laughs> happened, because again, I'm hyper, but he starts out with it and then he kind of walked it back. And so I think he pivoted yeah, yeah. <laughs> to to make it sound like, oh, what I mean is these like online, like University of Phoenix type, you know, like I think that's because I remember a few years ago, that was a big scandal, especially like when Trump and Trump University and all this stuff. So they were trying to make it look like, so you know how Krumen's like I said, especially for profit. Like yeah, I think he pivoted yeah. and realized there's no way I can possibly defend my claim that private schooling has gotten crushed historically. So I got to pivot to mean for profit, which, so for one thing, can you explain that distinction? But then also, you know, I, I really don't know. Is it true that, yeah, for-profit universities, I mean, presumably a degree from Harvard is better than one from University of Phoenix, but is that apples to apples? Yeah, I, I don't know very rigorous evidence on higher education, so I can't really tell you. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of selection in higher education. That's one reason why I like to focus on K-12, through because sure. we have more randomized control mm -hmm. trials. So I can't tell you the state of the evidence, but I will say with K-12 through and, you know, the discussion about for-profit or not, the vast majority of charter schools, for example, are not for profit. So about 85% is the best estimate that I've seen or more is they not that are not for profit charter schools. About 15% mm. are for are for profit charter schools. But I don't care if something's for profit or, or not. You know, as long as people are voluntarily choosing to go to this charter school over their uh, residentially assigned school, I'm mm -hmm. super I'm super fine with people profiting off of providing a better product or service. The thing is that people don't really realize is that people in the traditional public school system profit all the time. I mean, you have large textbook companies that profit off of uh, the, the large monopoly mm -hmm. in traditional public schools. But then even if we just laxed our if we don't stick to the pure definition of what profit means, you know, mm -hmm. revenues minus expenditures, you know, you know being positive. Even if you're a not-for-profit, you can you can still essentially pay your employees a, a ton of money, paying right. administrators a ton of money just right. to get revenues to equal expenditures. And I don't care if you're profiting off of voluntary, uh, you know, uh, decisions about schooling. What what irritates me is when people are profiting from a system of compulsion, and that mm -hmm. is the residentially assigned government-run right. school system. That's that's where I have a problem. You shouldn't be profiting mm -hmm. off of forcing people to consume your service. Yeah. What, so one more thing and before we leave my favorite topic of Krugman, the thing that really surprised me about his rhetorical stance there was normally when it comes to education and, you know, private versus public. And in a minute, we'll get to this issue of should we even be using the term public? So normally, and correct me if, I'm, if you disagree, but normally the way the argument plays out is people will look at things like test scores, going to college, whatever. And just about any measure you look at, private schools blow so-called public schools out of the water and the defenders of the government system will say, well, yeah, that's because rich people can put their kids in the elite schools or whatever. 
and they can they can kick out bad kids or you know they wouldn't say bad kids coming from a troubled home environment whereas the government is the fallback they have to educate everybody and so yeah of course you know you're, it's apples to oranges and that it's not a fair comparison like that's always what i've heard is to be the standard yeah. defense whereas Krugman just saying hey let's let's throw that out the window and just make up stuff yeah, he completely made stuff up. And, you know, the randomized control trials net out that selection right. bias because everybody selects to get into the lottery. So you, mm -hmm. you can't say that the, the kids are different in the private versus the public schools. That that would be a fair comparison or a fair statement to make if you're just looking at overall averages that look private schools, you know, the, the kids mm -hmm. end up making more money versus the kids in the public schools. Well, obviously, because they were they had higher incomes to begin with. And, right. um, you know, yeah, just so looking at averages would would. That yeah, and this is yeah, this is what I wanted to circle back to to make sure the listener gets why you're when you're saying things like, oh, there were was it 16 studies? The RC Yeah, there's 16 random yeah. assignment studies yeah. linking private school choice to test scores in the US. There are uh, up like four or five outside of the US, which which tend to be positive as well. Okay. Actually, so yeah, I just want to clarify to the listeners, <laughs> you're you're not saying that, oh, if we just look at the SAT scores or GR or whatever, or I guess SATs would be the issue. For or you know this level of passing some competency thing that the state administers, that some of the time the private schools operate. No, is it generally yeah, the case that the yeah. private blows them I, out of the water? Typically, it's just but but that it's it's considered unfair because oh the type of home environment, mm -hmm. like the parents might be more involved to send their kids to a private school, and so that's not a fair like look at the look at the kids that the teachers in the downtown uh, public schools have to try to teach and. It's not, yeah, you know what I mean? They're the same the in the minimum assignment studies as if right. you have a large enough sample because the law law large numbers. Um, so those are the types of studies I'm I'm citing because you know if we just compared error, averages, that wouldn't be a fair comparison. The private schools would, of course, uh, outperform the traditional public okay. schools, but right. that that. That, that would be riddled with uh, selection bias. But then also, you know, people say that, look, the more advantaged kids use, use these programs. That's not true. If you look at the 63, 64 private school choice programs in the U.S., I think almost every single one of them is targeted either based on income, uh, special needs, or uh, the the uh, quality level of the school that you are mm -hmm. residentially assigned to. If you're if you're assigned to a, a failing public school, then you you're you're eligible for the program. So almost every single one of these programs. I don't want to say every single one because there may be an exception. Sure. Um, but the vast majority of these programs are targeted to the least advantaged based on one of those mm -hmm. three characteristics or all of those three characteristics. And then there have been studies that look at even out of these. Eligible populations of disadvantaged students, people in the school choice debate have argued about. Well, maybe it's the more advantaged out of that disadvantaged group that who apply for the program. But that that study, those studies are actually a mixed bag as well. And if you had to call it one way or another, it's actually tends to be the case that the less advantaged, even out of that disadvantaged group, apply for these programs because they are in the ones in the schools that are working the least best for them. They're mm -hmm. the ones who are not being uh, served well by the traditional public school system. So they have an, a stronger incentive to go out and apply for these programs. And for listeners, if you want to see this, you know, limited body of evidence, I've summarized 10 of these studies that look at this. It's if you go to education next, you can just Google vouchers tend to serve the less advantage and you'll be able to find mm -hmm. that body of evidence. So, so you can look for yourself, but it tends to be that the least advantaged uh, uh, disproportionately use these programs. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me just, so that's great. And let me just make sure we finish the, the train of thought. So the randomized assignment studies, the deal is there, there's, you know, th this charter school or whatever has 20 open slots. 
50 families apply for it. They flip a coin or whatever to random. And then the study follows the 20 students that got in and the 30 who applied but didn't get in who have to remain in the government school. And that's what they track. Yep. And then, you know, they usually have a bigger sample of that so that the law, sure. law yeah. large numbers right. can apply. Um, but yeah, that's that's what they do. They still add controls and, and show it both ways. You know, mm. it's usually it, if random assignment occurs uh, effectively, then and, and, and if you have a large enough sample size, you shouldn't need controls. But these studies, you know, do it both ways and show both mm. types of results. Uh, but yeah, that's what we're talking about. But with voucher programs, it typically it, the the lottery happens at the program level, not at the school level. With charter schools, it, it typically happens at okay. the school level, and okay. they look at school level lotteries. But mm. with the programs, it's the the intent to treat there is the effect of of winning the lottery to use the program. Right, right. But the but you can do a, a treatment on the treated type of two stage least squares re- regression to see the effect of using that at a private mm. school. So you can get the effect of a private school, right. and it's still causal because the instrument, the random lottery, is is exogenous. Um, so that's that's what we're talking about. And I also want to hit on, you know, the kids left behind in the public schools. First, I think this is this is a, a ridiculous line of reasoning, Wait, even can, if it can was. You, can you elaborate yeah. what, what is the, or let me be the person to say, well, OK, the, the reason argument, this is yeah. unfair, this is a horrible idea. OK, sure. Even if it were the case and the evidence is mixed. But even if this guy, Corey, were right and you can, quote, rescue some of these students that are stranded in these bad government schools by having them go to this Mecca of the, you know, private schools where the elites send their kids. Still, that makes it worse. Now the kids that are left behind in the government run schools, the smart, their smartest peers are the kids that came from the best two parent families who had good reading habits. Now they're gone. And now it's even yeah. worse. So that, that condemns everyone else. And so it's not surprising if you just rescue some and leave the rest to mire and misery because Corey doesn't care about those students left behind. So that, yeah, that's, so the that, that's the argument yeah. that's made. So as I've already said, the selection tends to be negative. So the kids that are a little bit uh, better off tend to be tend to be the ones who remain in the traditional public school system. So that's my first response. Second is that, well, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that the kids who are left behind in, or who remain in the traditional public schools or government run schools, whatever you want to call them, actually do better. There are 28 studies on this. One just came out of Florida, looking at the ta- tax credit scholarship program in Florida, just a few days ago, National Review wrote, wrote a good summary of it. Uh, but this came out in NBER, and it found uh, pretty large positive effects of school choice competition on the kids who remain in the traditional public school. So there have been 28 studies on this now. 26 of the 28 studies find statistically significant positive effects on the kids who remain in the traditional public schools because of competitive pressures. You know, the public schools start to up their game a little bit if they don't want to start, you know, losing the money. And so they start mm-hmm. changing their curriculum. They start, you know, advertising to their the families about how great they are. They start upping their game. And this is this is how it works with the rest of the economy as well. You know, if you start if you can start to lose your customers, well, then you have an incentive to actually cater to the needs of those customers. And that's what we mm-hmm. see in this evidence. This is not disputed by either side. Uh, just because it's so clear, 26 of 28, and the two of the 28 find no statistically significant effects overall. There, one of those tw- uh, 28 finds statistically significant effects on, on like a subgroup of students, but sure. overall, none of these mm-hmm. studies find statistically significant uh, negative effects. And then there's been a meta analysis in the journal Educational Policy in 2019 that was um, peer reviewed 
and, and it was done by researchers at University of Texas, Austin. And they also came to the same conclusion that the competitive effects studies are actually positive. So if you do care about the kids who remain in the, in the public schools, then you should also be fighting for, for school choice because school choice is the rising tide that lifts all boats. You don't even have to use the program to benefit from it. And right. so I think it's a, it's a win-win in that sense. And then also the kids who remain in the public school system, most people don't think about this. They actually get more money on a per pupil basis in the traditional public schools. And the reason for this is that uh, traditional public schools in the U.S. are funded based on enrollment counts, but they're not completely funded based on enrollment counts. I think they should be. I think it should be 100 percent of the money just follows the student to whatever school they go to. Mm-hmm. But in the U.S., Researchers at Georgetown University's Edunomics Lab has a a chart on this for each of the states, and they estimate that about 40 percent to 80 percent of the funding is driven by students uh, and student enrollment counts. So let's say you're in Texas, for example, 66 percent of the funding is based on student enrollment counts. So if you're in a traditional public school and you lose a student to school choice competition, 66 percent of that funding is reduced in your in your school, but uh, you know the the costs associated with that student are are lost as well, and so you get to keep thirty three percent of the funding. So on a per pupil basis, mathematically, you must end up with more dollars per pupil. So you financially benefit. Um, a lot of people will start arguing about fixed costs. They got to keep their lights on and stuff. But studies have also estimated that even if you take into consideration fixed costs, the traditional public schools tend to benefit from school choice competition financially. Um, and then also all, all costs are variable in the long run anyway. So like mm-hmm. when, when I leave Walmart to go to Trader Joe's, uh, I, Walmart doesn't get to keep 33% of my funding, even though they have fixed costs, uh, right, right. and they shouldn't get to keep 33% of my funding when I go to Trader Joe's to do my grocery shopping, they would act, Walmart would be super happy about that if they had that set up. It right. shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is in the traditional public school system today. Mm-hmm. And just to continue that analogy, if originally there were a, a law saying anyone who wants to get groceries has to go to Walmart. Ridiculous. And then, you know, of course you would expect the quality and the price to be awful. And then if the law opened up and said some selected families get to shop elsewhere, not only would they be better off, but as you were mentioning, you would expect the people who still stayed at Walmart would probably find all of a sudden, huh? It seems like they're more interested in maintaining the quality of the product here. Once people are allowed to shop somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And and to continue that logic even further, in current day and age, when I leave from Walmart to go to Trader Joe's, no one yells at me and says, oh, you're hurting the customers who remain at Walmart and you're a bad person. I don't care whether Walmart actually gets better or not, even though the mm-hmm. evidence suggests in, in the school sector that, that Walmart and, and the schools actually do get better. All I care about is that I'm getting a better product and service wherever I take my dollars to. It doesn't matter whether Walmart, you know, does better or closes down and it shouldn't matter. No government bureaucrat should should get to say to me that, Corey, you can't shop at Walmart anymore because, well, Walmart's getting worse because you left there. We would think all of us would think that would be completely ridiculous to be able to use government force to force me back into uh, shopping at Walmart uh, just because their outcomes didn't get better or because their services didn't get any better. That would be a huge restriction on freedom and liberty, and it would be completely ridiculous. Similarly, I think it's completely ridiculous to even use that argument with the school system. It shouldn't be my responsibility for the residentially assigned government school to up their game. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I should be free free to choose no matter what, no matter what happens in that school. So maybe let's take a minute. Um, 
Trump recently in the State of the Union used the term government school instead of public and people got, and you had a great little thing where you explained why, no, actually these aren't public schools. And you mm -hmm. went through some, some lessons, things I hadn't even thought of. So do you want to just rattle off some of your points there? Yeah. I mean, it, what was interesting was at the same time Trump was giving the State of the Union, I was giving a talk on school choice at the UCLA uh, Young Americans for Liberty chapter out there. And I actually went through this in my presentation as, as to why we should call them government run, run schools instead of public schools, not even knowing that Trump was, mm -hmm. was going to say anything about this. So it was actually pretty interesting that at the same time he was doing this, I was, I was doing this at UCLA. Uh, but yeah, right, right after I found out, you know, got out of that talk, I had a ton of messages on Twitter. People were like, did you tell Trump to say this? Because you're always mm -hmm. calling them government schools as well. And I was like, no, I had nothing to do with it. I promise. But then, you know, a few hours later, I was like, I got to write something up on this. And I, I came out with a with a op-ed on this in the Washington Examiner, just going over why I prefer to call them government-run schools instead of public schools. And the basic uh, thrust behind that is that they are government-run, they are government-regulated, they are government-funded. And, and so, like, yeah, I mean, like, it's government everything. And they're, and they're not public goods. Schooling is not a public good because it's both excludable and rivalrous in, in consumption. Um, so it's uh, economists on your or on your website uh, shouldn't take any issue with that. There there may be positive externalities of of, of schooling or education. It's mm -hmm. kind of hard to say that with the current system that we actually have. Um, but that still wouldn't classify it as a public good. That would that would classify that would mean that the that schooling is a merit good if we buy the argument that the externalities on net are positive from schooling. So it's not a public good. It's not. Uh, pu public schools are not, or government-run schools are not accessible to the public. They yeah, th discriminate point, by, yeah. by zip code. And that, that was the thing that really blew my mind is because, yeah, they, where yeah. I think that's, so clearly the people who call it public schools, it's not that they remember Paul Samuelson's definition of a public good. And the, they mean yeah, yeah, it's yeah. schools that the public can go to. Yeah, like and you're pointing out, no, if, if there's some great run government school down here, the public can't go there. They're, it's very restrictive who's allowed to go there. Yeah, so they discriminate on zip code, government-run magnet schools, so that which they would call public magnet schools. As I said, I went to one. They discriminate with selective admissions. Um, so yeah, these are these these are not things that are open to the public, like like you would think of as a public park. Whereas a public park, you know, pretty much you can just come and go. They don't say that you live here, you can't come in, and we're going to gate it off. Um, I would call public park a, a government park as well but you know mm. <laughs> but it's really it's it's an even harder case to call schools public in, in that they're you know all of these things that i just rattled off they're funded by the government they're regulated by the state federal and local levels of government uh they are directly run by the lo local government they're and, and they're funded by the government so there's and then yeah just I think that the strongest point as to why we shouldn't call them public schools is, is that they're not open to the public. Sure, right. Hey, boys and girls, you're invited to the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th to 24th, departing from sunny Miami. The Contra Cruise, of course, is always enjoyable, kids, but you don't want to miss this year because of the roast of Dave Smith. Now, believe it or not, folks, Tom Woods is actually not half bad. But Bob is the master of the roast. He is, he's tremendous, and it would have been wonderful to, to have him here, but he had to stay home practicing the pronunciation of the word nuclear. Good one, Tom. Why couldn't you be more like that on social media? Now let's see if Bob had anything up his sleeve when it came to Tom. All I'm saying, look, 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 folks, folks, folks. All I'm saying is, Tom, Tom, all I'm saying 
is that when you were in high school, if a kid on the football team said you were part of the loser brigade, that's just weird. That's all I'm saying. Just saying it's weird. Tom, what those kids did to you back then, it, it, it was wrong. It was wrong. But you need to let it go. Let it go. Ooh, good one, Bob. Of course, the big standoff last time was when Bob went head-to-head with Dave Smith. Get him, Bob. Hey, did you guys, I mean... Dave's show is really good, right? Part of the problem when you guys listen to it. Yeah, yeah, of course you do, of course you do. Great show, great show. Did you guys know that um, Dave actually has a sidekick, a co-host, if you will? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> Robbie the Fire, he's like a, a sidekick who doesn't get to talk very much. He, he's the Tonto of podcasting, folks. Really cool character. You get to hear three words per episode. <laughs> Ouch. I hope Dave has some thick skin. But Dave wasn't done yet. He swung back and swung back hard. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are like, oh, maybe that's just because he's lazy. No. No. Bob Murphy is such a good Misesian that he understands that even sitting on his fat ass is, in fact, action. Yikes. Better luck next time, Dave. Also, we'll be joined by special guest Ludwig von Mises, who will also participate in the roast. Listen to the podcast, but seeking to answer the question, why is Dave Smith so bad, you know? In what consists the poverty of his podcast? So remember, kids, it's the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th through 24th, departing from Miami on Royal Caribbean. For more details, go to ContraCruise.com. What about, and you had sent me some list of things we could bring up here. And I like the one recently I was following it where like the Washington Post, they had a story and it was just amazing. I don't know if you remember the exact details, but you can pick whatever story. Cause I think there was two recent cases where some, I don't know if it was an op-ed or an editorial, but they said something that was just demonstrably false. And then, like, it took them several stages to finally change it so that what they were saying wasn't demonstrably false. Yeah, and then they kept the headline anyway. They kept the subheadline, and yeah. they 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 kept their story, even though the fact was completely opposite. Which goes to show that the stories are not driven by the data; they're driven by uh, pushing a narrative. Um, so let's go over this first example. This was in the Washington Post, and the most shocking. So it was an opinion piece, right? But you know the editor should have caught this error. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also this was written by the dean of the Curry School of Education at UVA. So this is you know a high high level mm-hmm. uh, person in an academic elite institution, and he made the claim that since the late 1980s, uh, real he didn't say real. He said. Uh, uh, Funding of of public education in the United States has uh, decreased uh, after adjusting for constant dollars, which means real or or if you prefer to say inflation adjusted. So Mm. even after adjusting for inflation, he argued that since the late 1980s, real spending has has decreased in the United States. There's no way to, to, to slice the data where that is true. Um, and so I posted about it on Twitter and blew up the Washington Post on, on Twitter and put them on blast and just said, look, if you look at it at the state level, at the federal level spending, at local level of spending, total level of spending, spending per pupil at all these levels, 
there's no way you can say that funding has decreased after adjusting for inflation or, or not even if you don't adjust for inflation, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took them eight days to get this basic fact corrected. And it took a lot of pressure, public pressure on Twitter. But then also I was doing direct emails with one of the editors uh, at the Washington Post. And they kept going back and forth with me to try to figure out a, a way to spin it to which to w- which would make uh, Pianta's claim true, but there was no way you could spin it. And so in their correction, it's actually pretty embarrassing. And I'm glad that they did this at the very top in bold. They said, you know, originally we said that spending had decreased, but at the federal, local, state, total level, no matter how you slice it, this is not a true statement. It's actually increased. And, you know, even looking at the most generous um, uh, way to look at their statement, in 1989, 1990 school year, that's the highest spending level in the 1980s uh, relative to, to 2016, which is the most recent federal data on this from the National Center of Education Statistics. Real uh, per pupil spending has actually increased by 36%. So it's not even close. It's not even like it was a 2% increase right, or right. yeah, mm-hmm. it was a 36% real increase uh, over time. And there's no way to justify this. And I'm glad they corrected it, but it shouldn't have taken eight days and they shouldn't have gone back and forth. And they should have retracted the article because the whole thrust of the article was that we haven't tried this before. We haven't tried to spend more money. So we should actually do this and actually take education seriously and spend more money. But their their main uh, data point behind this claim was not true. We we have tried this. We've since 1960 in the U.S. We've increased per people spending by 237 percent after adjusting for inflation. From the 1980s, we've increased it by 36 percent after adjusting for inflation. So we have tried to spend more money. Um, you can argue about whether you know that's not enough, but the whole thrust of the argue, article was that we haven't tried to spend more money since we've decreased it, but they kept their article the same way. Sure, yeah. And the Philly Inquirer, just like a week or two after that, made a similar claim saying that, you know, real uh, over the last few decades, real spending in, the, in, in, in Pennsylvania and the U.S. has actually decreased. That wasn't true. I, I don't know if they read the Washington Post article and just followed that and, 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 and did that, but that wasn't true either. Um, but the Philly Inquirer actually made a correction. But the correction said uh, they changed from the last few decades to the last decade. And then I pulled up the data again at the U.S. level and at the Pennsylvania level that you can't say that either. Real real spending has actually increased by a lot over the last few decades and the last decade. So then it took a, a, like another week for them to correct the correction to actually say uh, uh you know, spending has increased in, in Pennsylvania, but they just spun it again. They kept their same exact narrative mm-hmm. um, and just said, you know, maybe that's not enough. But that just goes to show that it's it's the data are not driving the narrative, you know, because in both of these cases, the actual data said the opposite of what they initially cited. And then they didn't change their narratives at all, right. which, which is a sad state of, you know. Uh, and like uh, you're saying, at least with respect to the Washington Post, it wasn't that that was an incidental bit of trivia the whole premise was yeah let's yeah, try boosting spending fact. you know what i mean the, so that, that that's the whole yeah like if you flip it it's kind of hard to <laughs> yeah <laughs> it went I from mean, let's I, try spending more to even though we've been spending more it hasn't been enough yeah i mean you can always you know justify it that way that hey you know we should have spent five thousand percent more instead of 237 percent more but look this this was the dean of the uva curry school mm-hmm. of education there's no there's there's no way to justify this. I mean, this is at the top echelons of academia. 
in education, I mean, maybe even if it's a, it's a dean of like a business school, maybe they didn't know better, but Bob Pianta should have known better. He's the dean of an education school. He's been in this game for a long time. And for him to claim something that's just a, a demonstrably false, verifiably false statement is just yeah. absolutely unacceptable. We even had people like Bruce Baker on Twitter who tends to say that he he calls for more spending consistently in the education debate. He's well known for this. He's, his position on this is well known. But he said, you know, there's a lot of room for disagreement. But look, you know, I don't agree with 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 Bob Pianta here. He, he, he can't just be making stuff up about the basic facts. And so yeah. I'm glad, you know, people on the other side as well of this debate who actually agree mm-hmm. with Bob Pianta actually came out. And, you know, um, right. I, I respect Bruce Baker for actually coming out and and being truthful about this. He could have just shut up and not say, yeah, right. said anything about it. He could have mm-hmm. remained quiet. But, you know, props yeah. to him for actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pointing this out as well. Okay, how about another one you sent? So the claim is that some of these things, at least like, the, oh, well, the private schools, they discriminate. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I just gave Bruce Baker props uh, for saying, you know, that mm-hmm. Bob Pianta made a false claim, but he in the Heckinger report recently, you know, three, three or four weeks ago, made the claim that private schools can discriminate based on race. Or the exact claim is something along the lines of, you know, perhaps people might be uh, concerned that these private schools who can accept voucher funding might discriminate based on race. So he didn't explicitly say private schools can discriminate on race and that they're going to. He said that he he essentially implied with his co-author, Preston Green, that, you know, it implies if you're saying that people might be concerned that they might discriminate based on race, it essentially implies that private schools can discriminate. Right. It's kind of like what Hillary Clinton said. As far as I know, Barack Obama is not a Muslim. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that's like saying, you know, people can be concerned that these private schools are going to, you know, kill their the students, you know, that would be a ridiculous right. claim because it's not legal, but you could, I mean, right, yeah, right. of course people could, could be concerned about that, but yeah, that's, yeah. that, that implies that they're actually going to do this. And so federal law actually prohibits private schools from discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, so I'm actually working with an, an editor at the Heckinger report and props to them for, you know, actually working with me on this correction. So I think mm. they're going to actually correct this statement. They're going to keep the statement in there that people could be concerned, but I think they're going to add more nuance. To clarify that add, the concern add, would be unfounded. Yeah, just so they're yeah. going to add, you know, that 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 Section 1981 does not allow private schools, religious or non-religious private schools, to discriminate on the basis of race. So there's, there's no justification for saying that they can. Um, uh, Readers at home or, or listeners can can look up Runyon versus McCrary, 1976, the Supreme Court case that uh, did, did not say that private schools or said that, that private schools in general cannot discriminate on the basis of race. And I've talked to a constitutional lawyer on this before I came out swinging on this to, to get people to correct this statement, because it was made in, in another newspaper in Oklahoma just just like a week ago as well. So mm-hmm. this is a recent trend that people are talking about. I, I consulted with a, a lawyer at the Institute for Justice who has dealt with a lot of this stuff and made sure I was right on this before coming out and, you know, right. saying, like, come on, you guys can't say this. And he said that, you know, uh, Section 1981 uh, applies to all private schools. And until um, a private school comes out and tries to make a case as to why 
uh, uh, Section 1981 should not apply to them. The, the law of the land is that private schools may not discriminate on the basis of race. And there have been no private schools that have come out and tried to make a, a claim as to why their religion allows them to discriminate on, on the basis of race. And there are zero examples of private schools discriminating based on race today in the United States. So this is a completely unfounded claim, but props to Heckinger Report for actually working with me on a correction in this case. And then a related one is people are arguing that, oh, at least in the case of Florida, that it's private schools that have, you know, biblical values can discriminate against um LGBTQ students. And so do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So there's some representatives in Florida who are currently arguing. And just over the past past couple of weeks, this was a big thing that blew up in the media in Florida. Orlando Sentinel has been attacking the private school uh, scholarship program as well, as well as uh, two representatives over there. They, quote, said that the program, the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program, is an anti-LGBTQ voucher program. And so that's false on a couple of levels. It's not a voucher program. I explained this earlier because it's a tax credit scholarship. It's mm-hmm. a privately funded program. It's not a publicly funded program. So vouchers are publicly funded. That's why we call them vouchers versus scholarships. Um, right. So calling it a voucher program isn't true, but the main thrust of calling it an anti-LGBTQ uh, voucher program is extremely misleading because that implies that the program itself discriminates against uh, LGBTQ students. But in reality, the program gives if you qualify based on income, the, the, the program awards scholarships to students regardless of their sexual orientation. So to call the program itself anti-LGBTQ is mm-hmm. completely misleading. And what happened in Florida is a lot of the corporations you know, uh, pulled out of donating to the program because they saw this PR disaster unfolding. And they said, oh, I, I don't want to be labeled as a bank that's anti-LGBTQ. So even if they don't agree with this statement – they don't want the negative press on this right, and the negative right. PR public relations disaster. So a lot of them pulled out. But actually, within the past couple of weeks, Fifth Third Bank, I want to give them a shout out, actually resumed donating after they realized that these representatives and the, and the media actually uh, misled them to think that the program itself is an anti-LGBTQ program. And there's tons of stories of LGBTQ students and low-income minority students using this program who are benefiting from the program. So mm. the representatives are are calling on corporations, tagging them on Twitter to, to stop funding the program because it's anti-LGBTQ. And in the process, they're unintentionally harming LGBTQ students because they're taking their scholarships away. Right. So you got LGBTQ students not getting their scholarships anymore, and they might not even been going to these schools who are, quote unquote, discriminating against Mm. them. They could have been going to these other private schools. And now that you're defunding the program, they're not getting to go to any private schools. And a lot of these LGBTQ students are are using the program in the first place because the public school wasn't working for them and because they were being bullied or harassed in the um, in the traditional public school system. So taking away low income minority and LGBTQ students scholarships does absolutely nothing to help them. And I would argue it does more harm than Mm. good. And then also there's been a a national school climate survey done by GLSEN. It's a LGBTQ uh, rights organization. They did a 2017 nationwide survey. And one of their questions is they asked their survey of LGBTQ students, you know, do they feel harassed or bullied? A whole sort of different school climate uh, questions if they feel safe in school. And they compared public to private 
And on just about all these 20 different questions, I think there were one or two that weren't in favor of private, but the vast majority of them found large advantages for the students in the private schools. Mm -hmm. So based on the representative's argument that we shouldn't be funding discrimination, well, then we should be we shouldn't be funding the traditional public schools either, because the LGBTQ students are reporting more discrimination in the traditional public schools than they are in the private schools. Right. I mean, I would my gut would be to think that in terms of maybe being in an environment where you're learning that your orientation or lifestyle choices are immoral, okay, I could see you feeling a certain thing in a, certainly a, a religious private school. But in terms of where are you going to get beaten up in the hallway between classes, I would think just in general, the government schools yeah. are way more dangerous. Exactly. And that's the finding of the GL GLSEN survey in 2017. If you want to look it up, I think if you just Google GLSEN 2017 school climate survey, you'll you'll find it and you can go to the appendix. I think it's a ta table one or table two in the appendix. And it finds overwhelmingly that these students are reporting much better environments in the private schools. So, mm -hmm. you know, based on their logic, we should be defunding the public schools, right. not not the private schools. And then look, just, you're, mm -hmm. they're, they're also pitting um historically disadvantaged groups against one another. They're com they're pitting low-income families using this program and minority families who are using this program against the LGBTQ rights crowd. Um, and, you know, like, who are we to decide who should win? Should this large number of disadvantaged families get, the, get to have their scholarship or should we cater to the, the small amount of families who are, are using these who are also benefiting from these programs. Right, so it, right. it, it doesn't even need, a, need to be a battle of, you know, low-income and minority versus LGBTQ because the LGBTQ students are benefiting from this program right. too. They can pick from a wide array of mm -hmm. religious or non-religious schools. So again, taking their scholarships away is, is a bad thing, not a good thing. Now, I'm just curious, clearly, you know, you're, you're pointing out that the way they're deploying this, this terminology or this labeling is, is misleading at, at best. But is there any grain of truth in the sense, like, just how does it work? Like, could a private school say, we're not taking a student who has a certain orientation? Or is it more yeah. like, well, we're not, we're going to call you by your birth name. You, you don't, you know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering, there's different la layers of things I could imagine someone saying, that's transphobic. Yeah. So Step Up for Students, which is one of the biggest scholarship, there's only two scholarship granting organizations in Florida. And I, we, this is an aside, but I think mm. one of the fixes for this is to have a market for charitable donations instead of just having two scholarship granting organizations. If I'm a company, I can, I could, I should be able to pick where I donate donate my right. funding, and that could solve this uh, supposed problem as well. But Step Up for Students has has reported, and they and they grant 99% of the of, of the scholarship, so it's essentially a one a one stop shop for scholarships. There's one other small organization that grants about one percent of the scholarships, but they've reported that there are no actual cases of discrimination where kids are being you know kicked out of schools based on their sexual orientation. So this seems to be more of like a theoretical issue than an actual in real life issue. Right. And it seems more, again, to be more of like a messaging issue to try to attack the school choice program, to try to use the LGBTQ, um, you know, label to, to attack the program, to try to mm. label the program as anti-LGBTQ when it's actually not. Um, but th it is true that there are some private schools and the Orlando Sentinel went through like about a thousand private schools in Florida. And they found, I think, about a hundred in, in their sample that had what they deem to be anti-LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ policies in their handbooks. And, but that could, that could mean just something as simple as saying that we do not permit promiscuous behavior on campus. 
And that that's for straight people and LGBTQ uh, individuals as well. So it's not like they're only calling out LGBTQ, but they would they would label that in their list as anti LGBTQ. But the result of that policy would essentially be, look, they have it in their handbook as kind of like a backup plan that if there's something that they see to be in conflict with their religious beliefs going on on campus, then they can expel the student. So it seems to be like an after the fact thing, not a you can't come here in the first place thing. But there are certainly, of course, I'm sure they could find some schools that do say you can't come here if if, if you're this mm-hmm. sexual orientation. Yeah. And I mean, not of course, it's the same thing, but I just remember like during the the marriage, uh, you know, gay marriage debate, in the you know the, the the infamous you know Christian bakers and stuff. Yeah. A lot of those cases, it was it was being portrayed as oh they refused to sell a cake to a gay person. And it was like no, those people that was their bakery. They went yeah. there for years. Yeah. It was we will not make a cake celebrating something that we don't think is made. Just like yeah. if a guy, if a heterosexual guy came in and said I want to have a cake celebrating my affair with my secretary, say no. they would probably say with my beliefs I can't do that for you. That's not anti hetero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I mean, again, they're, they're using the ex- exception to prove the rule. The vast majority of schools, even in their sample uh, at the Orlando Sentinel, mm-hmm. did not have these type of uh, quote-unquote anti-LGBTQ you know LGBTQ policies. They're, they're using the exception to prove the rule. And then also, this comes in conflict with um, uh, freedom of, of religion, you know? So, like, in order to prevent sub- theoretical discrimination against LGBTQ individuals, these legislators are calling to discriminate against religious people. Right. So they're they're trying to combat discrimination in one form by proposing mm-hmm. discrimination in another form. And so this this is an issue that'll that'll continue to be talked about with school choice. But I'm hoping more companies like Fifth Third Bank in Florida start realize, realizing that they were actually misled when when these lawmakers came mm-hmm. out and started tagging them on Twitter with this negative PR. Right, right. Well, this still, we got a, just a little bit of time here left. Let me play devil's advocate, if you don't mind, just to push back. So one of your favorite rhetorical ploys is to like find some, what you would call an anti-choice public official who sends his or her own kids. So l- let me, again, I, I, school choice hypocrisy, man. Yeah. Let, let me, yeah. Let me um, set it up and then I'll let you respond. So I was very, during the, the health care stuff. There were things like uh, Rand Paul, you know, gets beaten up and he goes to the hospital. And so some people were like, oh, Rand Paul is benefiting from his private health insurance, but he's not willing to grant that to every everyday Americans. What a hypocrite. So he's allowing other people to, to have private health insurance, right? <laughs> right. But he, he doesn't want the government to pay for it. So I'm saying, isn't there a kissing cousin relation in your, the way you're attacking? Like, couldn't somebody, let me put you this way. Yeah. Suppose somebody in Congress, and I don't even know if this might be Rand Paul's position for all I know, what if they're saying, you know, I got serious concerns about so-called voucher programs because I'm worried that, you know, giving government money, I don't want to endorse the principle that it's the government's job to educate your kid. Maybe mm-hmm. we can give tax credit, but to actually just give government funds to family, I'm not sure I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, if, but I, I happen to send my kid to a private school because I'm wealthy and can afford to do so. Do you think that's hypocritical or is it more... Yeah, so this is like uh, Elizabeth Warren was the first politician that I found, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fights really hard against private school choice for others, but then exercise, in, in my view, private school choice for her own kid since she sent Alex Warren to private schools from fifth grade to 12th grade. Uh, and then she lied about it on on, right. on video as well. If you want to see my pinned tweet on Twitter, I, I that's 
that's kind of how this all blew up when I when mm. I shared that video of her lying to a mom about sending her kid to a private school when she said, "No, I sent my kids kids to public schools, not private schools." Um, but I but I argue that it's hypocritical because hypocrisy is when your your public views that that your views that you it, you say to the public do not match your private views, and so it looks like. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and other politicians are saying, oh, no, everybody should just remain in their public schools. That's how we fix public schools. But then she pulled her own kid out of public school. Right. So she's seen in an interview with the uh, president of the, the biggest teachers union in the United States, the National Education Association, saying that you shouldn't leave the charter schools. You should you should stay in your in your public schools if you don't think it's working so that you can help, you know, get it more funding and so that you can um, kind of band together to make the public school better. But she didn't do that. She pulled her kid out of the public school when she thought it wasn't working for them. And I, I also just see that it's really ideologically inconsistent for her to call for more expansion of Pell Grants, which are essentially vouchers at the higher ed level, which can be used at private or public universities. And she also calls for universal pre-K, which is essentially a pre-K voucher. It's, it's, you can, in, with these universal pre-K programs, you can pick private providers of pre-K or you can pick public providers of pre-K. So I see that it's just hugely ideologically inconsistent to support these two and then say, oh, but for K through 12, we're not going to allow people right. to, to use vouchers at the K through 12 level, but, but we're okay with expanding another. And then also like they, you know, the, this is typically democratic politicians, mm -hmm. not always, but 99% of the time that I've, that I've found is that these are democratic politicians is that they, they say that they're for helping the least advantaged. And so they, you know, they're for Pell Grants, they're for universal pre-K, they're for, um, expanding, um, Medicaid, which is essentially a voucher for, for hospital expenses, which could be used at private, even religious hospitals. They're for, uh, food stamps, which can be used at private grocery stores. And that disproportionately benefits the least advantaged because it's targeted based on income. Mm. But then when it comes to education, as far as K through 12, they say, no, we're not going to allow you to have essentially food stamps for K through 12 education. So, and when I press them on this, it, there's, there's typically no response. Uh, they'll pivot to something else, but it, they don't have a very good response mm -hmm. as to why they're inconsistent about this. Okay. So I a hundred percent agree with you. The standard defender of government schools is inconsistent and hypocritical on this stuff. Yeah. But I'm, I'm saying couldn't, I mean, I, I just my my personal thing. I'm very leery about a, a voucher program because I'm concerned that will make even the private schools more beholden. Yeah. In other words, the government's not going to give vouchers to anything. Like if you know my uncle Joe just so starts, right, oh, right. I'm having a class, right? And so, isn't there a concern that that will just allow the government to even like? In, in other words, instead of bringing the public schools closer to the private school standard, it'll flip it and make everything awful. Yeah, but the uh, the default option here is that we have almost, you know, the vast majority of students, 82% of students in the United States are in, you know, government-run schools in the U.S. So they're already highly, you know, regulated. Voucher programs can be regulated, but I see on net that if we transfer children from highly regulated government schools into private schools, then we'll have on net more students in less regulated schools. It, it's all, it's, it's of course possible that the voucher programs could be as regulated as the government run schools today, but just based on the evidence we have today, they're far mm -hmm. less regulated than government run schools. I don't know of any voucher program that says private schools can't be religious, for example, if they accept voucher funding. And then another thing that libertarians should, should like about voucher programs is that they're voluntary. Private schools don't have to accept any voucher funding at all. 
And so even if it was very financially beneficial for them to do so, I would imagine that in this world where we have universal voucher program or universal school choice, that the private school there would be some segment of private schools, maybe 10%, like the amount of private schools that we have today, who say, I'm not accepting the voucher money. And like if you look at places like in Louisiana, which is one of the highest regulated voucher programs in the US, in their experimental evaluation, they found that only a third of the private schools actually participated in the program. Two-thirds said, no, I'm not taking the money because it's too many regulations. We don't want to do all the testing and the random admissions. Mm. Um, and it tended to be the lower quality schools that did accept the, the funding. Um, so I see this concern that libertarians have about potential regulations. But my main response is, look, it's voluntary. And then two, the default option is way more regulated than what these voucher programs are regulated. And then three, this is another reason why I argue for uh, tax credit scholarship programs, because they're privately funded and less regulated. Mm-hmm. But then also uh, education savings accounts are way less likely to be regulated than voucher programs. And think about it from a regulator standpoint. How do you regulate an education savings account program? The only way to really do it is to say that, you know, it has to be an approved government, uh, an expenditure that's approved by the government that's an education expenditure. But, you know, today that's been pretty open. And with voucher programs, you can see, you know, if the test scores get better or worse from a voucher program. But with with ESAs and education savings account, I spend that on a whole bunch of different services. So the regulator doesn't know what led to my better or worse outcomes. They don't know if it was the school, if it was the textbook I purchased. They don't know if it was the tutoring services that, that were provided to me. So mm. it makes it much more difficult for the regulator to figure out. And I think that's why we've seen that education savings accounts as well have been less regulated than than uh, voucher programs. Let me try one more, again, just the devil's advocate to, to make sure at least the listeners get what, what my concern is with some of the rhetoric in the, the the school choice movement. If somebody, and this doesn't work perfectly, but you'll get the, the spirit of what I'm doing here, Corey. So imagine somebody, you know, some libertarian type says, you know, this is crazy. The government spends all this money, especially like in big cities on uh, so-called public transit and bridges and whatever. And poor people are actually being taxed in various ways to pay for a lot of stuff that they don't use. So why don't we just have transportation choice and the, the money the government would have spent on you to yeah. be able to take the, the city bus or the subway or whatever, we'll give you a credit or, or a voucher and you go down to the car dealership and buy whatever car you want. And because we libertarians don't think that only the rich should be able to drive cars. We think everybody should be able to transportation choice. Wouldn't, would that maybe it's a little bit give of a you pause? It's a little bit of a different analogy because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have government producing all of the cars. If we did have government producing everybody's cars and, and and if you were like residentially assigned to a car dealership, I think that would be a better analogy. Or with grocery stores, if we funded food stamps for everybody uh, and, and everybody mm-hmm. was residentially assigned to their government grocery store and we spent that money on everybody already, um, I think grocery store choice would be a good movement away from that particular system. Just like with with education, the default is that we fund schooling for everyone through the property tax system, and we residentially assign everyone, whether you're rich or poor, to your nearest government-run school. And so, if you the movement away from that that default option with Mm -hmm. choice, and especially if it's funded at you know like 80% of what we would have spent in the government-run schools. That saves taxpayer money and it reduces control by the government. So I think we always need to think about this in terms of what the default option is. Like, for example, if if government didn't run any schools and if government didn't fund education at all, I would think uh, I would I, I would think a lot differently about education savings accounts and, and vouchers mm-hmm. because from that uh, the Democrats tend to support pre-K 
expansion and support Pell Grants expansion, but they don't support K through 12 vouchers because Pell Grants expand uh, government control in higher education, or at least government funding in higher education. Pre-K relative to the current system expands government control of education by tacking on another year and then also more spending on education, whereas K through 12 vouchers reduce the control of government and reduce spending, uh, government spending as well. So um, I think that's that's why there's uh, supposed inc- inconsistency from right. from Democratic politicians on this. Okay. All right. Great. So fair. So it, it sounds like you're saying yes, if it were starting from or in the analogies I was bringing up, you agree that rhetoric and proposals would be disquieting or you know, but because yeah. where we're starting from with education is so statist, actually yeah. this is a yeah. move in the right direction. Is what you're saying? Yeah, and I've actually gotten to it. I, I participated in a debate on this very question at Liberty New Hampshire Liberty Forum a year or two ago. Okay. Um, and uh, I think his name, Mike Underwood, was on the other side. I was mm-hmm. I was on the side with um, a legislator, Glenn Cordelli, in New Hampshire, and we took the mm-hmm. argument that no, that, and this is a libertarian conference that education savings accounts are actually a movement away from government control. And the other side was arguing that, hey, this mm-hmm. is like this is like food stamps, this is like Pell Grants, where we said no, this is relative to the default where everybody's stuck in highly regulated government-run schools. Getting away from that and allowing more choice and competition is actually a libertarian uh, friendly move, and especially when it reduces uh, government yeah. spending. Well, 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 yeah, one last just clarification, make sure I know. So education savings, account, is that like a health savings account where it's it's allowing you to buy, spend money on educational expenses with pre-tax dollars? Is that what that means? No, this is so that can be funded two ways. One way okay. is just like the voucher where it. This money would have went to your public school, but now it's redirected into your savings account, publicly okay. funded. Mm-hmm. And so just like a voucher, but this way you can spend it on a lot of different things and not just private school. Not just a school. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then there's a similar uh, privately funded option, kind of like the tax credit scholarship, but you know, corporations and individuals donate to a scholarship granting organization, and then uh, families can come to the scholarship granting organization. Okay. And instead mm-hmm. of getting a scholarship, they get the money to go into a that uh, education savings account. Okay. So right, great. the only difference really is how you can spend the money. Can you just right. spend it on schooling or can you spend it on, um, you know, educational expenditures like homeschooling, for example, as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's another, and so like th- this has been an, an argument with the homeschooling community as well. Some homeschooling, com- a bit large part of the homeschooling community is, is very libertarian and skeptical of, of, of government intervention. So some libertarian groups have actually come out against uh, education savings accounts for the very reasons that you bring up. But mm-hmm. my my typical response and other people's responses, like Carrie McDonald, who's big on unschooling, has responded, look, this is voluntary. And if we can get more people into the unschooling or homeschooling environment on net, that should be a, a, a net positive since only three or four percent of the population today is using a homeschooling or unschooling alternative. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. So folks, for all the links we'll, I'll put here for uh, the things Corey referred to, it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 105. My guest has been Corey DeAngelis. Uh, Corey, thanks so much for being a part of the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.